The website of a prominent emergent umbrella group lists its various churches and among them its mother church. And on the website of the mother church, it's two-person leadership team. These men presumably giving leadership to the local church there and also to the umbrella of churches who are in their organization. The first team member is said to serve, quote, as the principal visionary and primary communicator of this church, this movement. His bio then immediately begins to speak about his private studio, his studio venture in which He, quote, inspires each person to live their most heroic life through the power of story, beauty, and design. His studio, says, focuses on film, fashion, music, and the arts with the uh, intent of advancing the good, the beautiful, and the true, end quote. A few educational credentials follow that, and then it introduces the second leader on this leadership team. Uh, This man, it says, quote, speaks, leads the charge with the visionary pastor on new initiatives and experimental ways to create healthy spiritual community. He's obsessed with science and has an insatiable desire to learn from the best in the world. Homeschooled, it says this man was. His parents believed that public education was essentially brainwashing and crowd control and that brainwashing should best be done in the privacy of one, one's own home. End quote. No mention anywhere on the website of any pastors, of any shepherds, of any elders, or of any of the language that you would traditionally have with church leadership. More importantly, not one single mention of any commitment to Scripture, to its principles, or to its preaching. All of it is talk of the experimental ways of creating healthy spiritual community, of obsession with science, of learning from the best in the world, of advancing not the gospel, but Whatever is good and whatever is beautiful and true, however those things are judged, I guess, very different from what we hear from the pen of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as he speaks about his own ministry and he describes the way that he approached leadership. We've been looking at this section in 1 Corinthians 3, which the entire chapter is largely taken up with the application of from the Apostle Paul of what he said so far about the wisdom of God and the wisdom of God's Word as opposed to the wisdom of the world. And you remember he sort of summarized the wisdom of the world in chapter 2, verse 9, when he talked about that which eye sees, that which ear hears, and that which enters into the heart of man. In other words, whatever can be discovered by empirical knowledge, observation, whatever can be discovered by historical knowledge, that is tradition, whatever can be discovered by philosophical knowledge, all that stuff that enters into the musings of a man's heart, whatever it is that has its source and origination with man, that's what Paul's talking about when he talks about the wisdom of men. And over against all of that stuff that originates with man and comes out of the world, Paul's been talking about the wisdom of God. 
which he says God has declared for his own glory and set up so that he could make foolish all the other stuff that's out there. Now, as we come into chapter 3, Paul's point in all of this is now to apply this to the church and to basically show how that he, as a minister of God and any other faithful minister of God, if they're going to work in the Lord's church, they had better work according to God's wisdom alone. God's wisdom alone. This is what he's doing with a series of analogies in chapter 3. Analogies of agriculture, analogies of constructing a building, analogies of a temple. All these essentially making the same point, basically contrasting those who in Paul's day, just like there are today, who would consider the wisdom of God or the wisdom of God's word as an inadequate or inferior instrument in the work of the ministry, in the construction of the church, an incomplete building material, something in God's Word that was full of archaic stories and antiquated views, insights which are considered to be obsolete in the face of modern society or out of step with the acumen of modern science. People who build believing that the principles and practices of God's Word need to be supplemented or even supplanted by the results of modern research into the behavioral sciences and the sociological insights that we've now gained. And they're driven by those things, driven by the conviction that somehow it's their task to improve on what God has given Well, Paul's driven by very different convictions, and he's demonstrating those to us in this chapter. Seven convictions that he really is demonstrating as we move through verses 5 through 17, and we've been taking note of them as the convictions of a careful worker in God's ministry, in God's church, I should say. The convictions of a careful worker in God's church. We took note, first of all, last week of the servant status that they have. This This is their conviction that they are in the church, they are in the ministry, not as a source, but as a servant. They are simply here serving at the will of someone else. This is the way Paul says it in verse 5. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? What are they? He says they are servants. Through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each. Paul was absolutely convinced that he was nothing more than an instrument employed by God, but that anything that came out of his ministry, out of his work, he says, was what the Lord himself did. So that if you believe, it was the Lord's work that caused you to believe. As a matter of fact, this is what the what he goes on to say in verse 7, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but it is God who causes. It is God who does it. Some of your translations provide the word growth, but it's not there in the original language. It's just simply God who works. We plant, we water, but it's God who does all the result from that. Is God who gives the growth. 
Whether you're planting seeds, whether you're watering seeds, whether you're talking about initial salvation, whether you're talking about sanctification, it's God, he says. It's not our ingenuity, it's not our strategies, it's not our insights. It's the Lord. This is the conviction of every careful worker. Closely tied to that is the second one, which is our stewardship responsibility. Paul says, he who plants and he who waters are one, in verse 6, and each one will receive wages according, excuse me, verse 8, according to his labor. In other words, it's ultimately God to whom you'll give an account as stewards of his possession, his church. And you will be giving an account. You will be judged. You will be held accountable, he says. You'll be rewarded. Not according to the growth and not according to the increase. That's God's work. But according to your faithfulness. This is what Paul essentially says down in chapter 4, verse 1. We're, we're stewards. We're servants and we're stewards. And, and when you're talking about a steward, when you're talking about a manager, you're essentially talking about faithfulness. I remember over and over again when I was in seminary, Dr. MacArthur always saying to us, look, the church is not in need of another innovator. It's in need of a faithful man. You can search the scriptures all you want. Peel every page. You will not find a call anywhere for an innovator. But you'll find over and over and over again a call for faithful people. People who will simply take what was given to them and transmit it to the next generation, unadulterated, unaltered, in total and complete, as the Lord had designed. This is the fundamental conviction of every careful worker. They are stewards. The church belongs to God, as Paul says there at the end of verse 9. Or in verse 9, we are God's fellow workers, but you are God's field, God's building. We have no claim to the field. We have no claim to the fruit. We have no claim to the building. We have no claim to its function. All of those things are God's. That leads to a third conviction that Paul highlights, which is the skill that's required of these workers. I mean, if you're going to give an account one day, if there's going to be an inspection of your work, you had better make sure that you're building according to the required plans. This is what Paul says, according to the grace of God given to me, in verse 10, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. He compares himself to this master builder, this chief engineer, this architecton, it says in the Greek, the person who implemented the plans for the church that have been given to him by God. And he did that, he says, by laying a stable foundation. That foundation, of course, as he's already said over and over again, was by the imparting exclusively of nothing but the wisdom of God. This wisdom, remember we said last week, Jesus himself had, had spoken of in a sort of, sort of a contrast analogy between the person who builds on solid ground and the person who builds on sand. Luke chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. And Jesus is drawing that contrast between people who build on His words versus people who build on anything else, human opinions, human attitudes, human feelings, human will. Things which are always shifting and always unstable. 
People who build on self-sufficiency, self-initiative, self-effort, self-righteousness. Too many of us have suffered through those kinds of situations where a leadership team runs off to the latest conference and they, they come back with their, you know, their, their two weeks of this or their 40 days of this or their new direction in that. And the church is always zigzagging back and forth from one program and one philosophy and one whim to the next. The wise man, Jesus says, digs down and simply builds on the foundation of his word. There's another kind, another kind of person who, for them, Christianity, church, only requires a surface understanding. I mean, all they want is the minimal, they don't want to dig down deep. They don't want to do any kind of massive excavation of their own heart or their own home or their own life. They don't want to do any excavation in God's Word. They don't want to do any of that. Surface is all they want. They want to build with as little effort as possible. They want to feel as little pain as possible. They want to invest as little uh, as possible into the project. I remember when we were doing a building here the people were having to dig down to lay the footings. And if I remember correctly, they dug down 60 feet to find solid ground. Sometimes that's what it takes. If you're going to build something the right way, if you're going to build on a foundation, you're going to have to dig deep to go down to the solid ground he, Jesus is talking about. Because appearance isn't really what it's all about. For some people, that's all they're interested in, appearance. They want to make a good showing in the flesh, Paul says in Galatians. They want to make a good showing in the community. They want, to, they want to be esteemed and praised and recognized and written about. But that's not the main point. The gospel isn't for appearance. It's for shelter, you see. It's for shelter from a storm. The storms of this life, and most importantly, the storm of judgment that every man and every woman will face. There are others who would construct their lives and construct their churches for appearance only, but when it comes to the real issues of life, the real storms of life, the real difficulties and complexities of life, they run to another authority. They go outside of God's Word. They look to other opinions and other uh, other research, other fields. That's the foundation they lay. Well, listen, we don't do what we do simply for appearance. We're building a shelter. We're building something that is intended to stand against the storms of life. But if you're going to do that, you've got to build on the right foundation. You've got to be a skillful builder. You've got to wisely dig down deep. Understand what God's Word says. Paul's point here is this, that if you're going to be a wise worker, if you're going to be a careful worker, if you're going to be a skillful builder, if you're going to build a church and the ministry the way that God designs, he says, look, in verse, at the end of verse 10, I laid a foundation, someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care 
how he builds. This is a call for careful workers. Whether or not you're a pastor or an elder, whether or not you're a Sunday school teacher, whether or not you're someone personally discipling another, whether or not you're an evangelist, whether or not you're a missionary, it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're a worker in God's field, a worker in God's church, the demand upon you is that you do so carefully, that you consider carefully what materials you're building with and and what foundation you're building on. Take care how you build. This is what skillful, wise workers do. This is what skillful, wise ministers, wise pastors do. This is how they build. That brings us to a fourth conviction of a careful worker, which is the significant place of Christ. Paul says there at the End of verse 10, let no one, let each one take care how he builds. And then in verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. His concern is that what they build must be consistent with what has already been laid. The foundation Paul's talking about, as we said, is the cross of Christ. It is the wisdom of the cross. It is the word of the cross. It is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, 1. He says, when I was among you, I decided to know nothing else. When I, when I was preaching to you, I didn't, I didn't bring in anything else. I decided, he says, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's all I built with. That's the only foundation I laid. It's the foundation that every faithful worker will lay. It's the foundation of Christ, the foundation of the cross, the centrality of who Christ is and what He's done. It is this foundation which resists all temptation to turn the church into an organization for entertainment, an organization for social change, to turn the church into an organization for political activism, It resists all temptation to turn the church into some effort for relief efforts or education efforts or whatever people try to do with the church today. It is this foundation that always brings back all of its workers to the centrality of Christ and the preaching of the cross. You say, well, that's sort of passe, sort of mundane. I mean, that's sort of basic. Listen, if that's your attitude, you don't understand. You don't understand what God's calling for. You don't understand the power of the cross. Paul is saying, if you're going to be a careful worker, you're going to have to build with this conviction, the conviction of the exclusive claims of Christ to who He is, to His divinity, His exclusive claims to truth, His exclusive claims to authority, to offer forgiveness and salvation, His exclusive claims to the power of sanctification in the life of a believer. And these must be always at the core. To state that Jesus Christ is the foundation, when Paul says that, he's not suggesting that you can lay that foundation and then quickly get on with other things, sort of leave it behind and move on to what is more interesting to you. 
He's not implying that you can leave these doctrines of Christ and go on to other things. He's not saying that Christ is only a part or simply the beginning and that after you've done that, you sort of build with other stuff. He's not saying that he laid down an, a, a foundation of just evangelistic messages about the cross of Christ. And then when you're finished with that, you can give some different teachings. He did not simply spend a year and a half of his life giving evangelistic messages over and over and over again. He gave them Christ as the complete answer. That's what he says over in Colossians 2. In fact, look with me over there. Colossians chapter 2, he says at the end of that chapter, gives a summary statement of his ministry. Excuse me, Colossians chapter 1, right before chapter 2. Verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning every man, teaching everyone, excuse me, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Go down to verse 6 of chapter 2. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught. Paul didn't lay the foundation of Christ and move on. He laid And he built, and he built, and he built with Christ. This is what he's saying to the Corinthians. Don't get lost in the analogy thinking it's some sort of partial aspect of the building. It is everything. Everything that you will ever teach, everything you will ever minister with must always and in all Things build on Jesus Christ. It must build on who He is. It must build on a demand for His glory. It must build on a solid foundation and understanding of His substitutionary atonement. It must build on His sufficiency and on His only acceptable sacrifice for sins. C.K. Barrett says, Paul does not mean that it would be impossible to construct a community on a different basis only that such a community will not be a church, end quote. There are lots of people building. There are lots of people gathering on Sundays. There are lots of people gathering around all kinds of movements and purposes and things. You can't very well call them a church, though, if they're not building on Christ. You can't build on your personal ethics. You can't build on your traditions. You can't build on your history, your heritage. You can't build on moral lessons. You can't build on personal sentiment. You can't build on personal feeling. Good works. Anything. And this is illustrated countless times over in Christ's own ministry as He came and talked to the architects of Israel's religion. And he told them over and over again how useless their system was built with its traditions and its works, but it had no foundation. Peter would eventually stand up and proclaim to the Jews in Acts chapter 4. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. He says, now it's become the chief cornerstone. 
And there's no salvation in anyone else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you're here this morning and you think that you're going to find salvation for your life, for all your turmoils, all your struggles, if you think you're going to find uh, uh, peace for your conscience or the absolving of your guilt in any other way, if you think you're going to find the answers for life anywhere else other than Jesus Christ, you're building on a faulty foundation. You've rejected the foundation stone. There's only one, Paul says. And try as he may, man may lay a foundation other than that, but he's not laying a foundation of salvation or of the church. In fact, Paul says no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid. Not saying you can't do other things, but he's just saying if you're going to build a church, you can't do it any other way. Every human philosophy, every religious system, every code of ethics, every list of rules and regulations, every do's and don'ts, good works, everything that arises out of man and finds its source in man is an inadequate foundation. And so take care how you build, Paul says. That brings us to the fifth Conviction of every careful worker, which is the scrutiny of our work. Paul says in verse 12, Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. The materials that Paul lists here are really just another analogy, another way of, another metaphor for teaching, for doctrine. And he sort of lists here in descending order of quality, you could sort of separate them into two groups. You could talk about the first three, which are those kinds of constructed materials that won't be burned up with fire. Gold, silver, precious stones, clearly high quality building materials. And you could talk about the second, wood, hay, or straw. It just as clearly represent inferior materials. That first group are just simply metaphors for that teaching which, are, which, which is consistent with the foundation that Paul had laid. That second group refers to that which is unworthy, unfit for the foundation that they have. I mean, no one, no one goes out there and lays... Concrete foundations for thatched huts, right? You go around to these villages and these places where people build their homes with sticks and, and bamboo. You don't see elaborate foundations, if foundations at all. People build on quality foundations with quality work. That's his point. We all understand the importance of this. I mean, before we go out there and make an investment in a home, what do we do? We call an inspector. We want him to go out. We want to make sure that the thing is built right, that the foundation is solid, that the materials are quality, that it's been constructed according to the right codes and the right rules and the right regulations. We sort of inherently understand this. 
And yet when people come to something like the church of God, they, 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 they suddenly think that they're just going to experiment. They're just going to sort of bring in other opinions and bring in other ideas, and they're going to try this for a few years, and they're going to try that for a few years, and they're going to, they're going to come up with this new research, and they're going to try that on and see how it works. Paul's saying all of that not only is unnecessary, it's dangerous. Dangerous for you, he says, because your work is going to be tested. It will happen, he says, in the day. You see there, most of your translations will have that word capitalized. The word day, it refers to the day of Christ's return. It will be tested. Some of it is tested in this life. Sometimes there are storms that come. And churches and individuals who haven't built on the right foundation are swept away. But for many, the quality of their work, unfortunately, will never become evident until the day. In other words, in the glistening sunlight of this life, sometimes just by the outward appearance, if you're just looking at appearance, you wouldn't know the difference between that which is solidly built and that which is not solidly built. The storms of of life and the storms of judgment haven't come. But be certain, be sure, your work will be scrutinized. God says if we're faithful, we build on God's wisdom and not on man's, we will receive a reward. But on the other hand, if you build only with the ideas, the traditions, the philosophies of men on top of the foundation of Christ, it'll be burned up. Useless. Useless. The implication is that their work, and especially even the accolades and the uh, approval, all that they had thought that they somehow had invested in will all be lost. It's unfortunately possible and probably Likely that many building with every imaginable human system on merely worldly wisdom, be it philosophy, pop psychology, managerial techniques, relational good feelings, relational insights, will stand there in that final day of judgment with nothing to show for all their efforts. Say, well, I mean, God's going to recognize at least I was sincere. I was genuine. I was authentic. Show, Show me where it says that in Scripture. Show me one place where it talks about judgment and anything in that context has anything to do with sincerity, authenticity, genuineness, at least by the way you define it. Or the culture defines it. You know what you read when you read about God's judgment? Judging according to His Word. Judging according to what He says. Now I'm not saying that you can, you can be ungenuine or insincere and, and that you can have some sort of surface external religious life and God's going to approve of that. What I'm saying is the thing that guides You is not your personal opinions or your personal sincerity or anything. It is the Word of God. 
That's, that, that's the means by which you will be judged. That is the thing that will determine the quality of what you are building with. This is what will test you. It'll be His Word. And He's a fool who then depends merely on his own estimation of his work. He's a fool who depends on his own feelings about how he's doing. As a matter of fact, over in chapter chapter 4, Paul says in verse 4, I am not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul says it really doesn't matter. My own personal judgment about what I'm doing really doesn't matter. What matters is what the Lord thinks. That sort of brings us to our fifth or sixth conviction that drives every careful worker in the church of God, which is the surety of our reward. If if the work, he says in verse 14, that anyone has built on the foundation survives this test, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. He's talking about this judgment that's coming for every believer at the end of the church age, the one that we will face immediately upon our entrance into heaven. This judgment, which is a judgment of our works, not our souls. The Scripture says that if you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for you. That there is no threat. Your sins, every one of them, have been completely wiped away. That you've been completely clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That there's absolutely no possibility of you ever being severed from the love of Christ, the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus. The Scripture says that you are secured forever by His love, by His covenant, by His promise. That heaven is as much a reality for you now and as secure now for you as it ever will be if you're in Christ Jesus. No threat that you will ever be lost to hell or to damnation. This judgment that you face, that Paul's talking about here, isn't a judgment of your soul. It's a judgment of your works. In fact, the Scripture speaks about a number of judgments that are going to take place in the day of the Lord. Revelation 20, for example, speaks about two that will be separated by a thousand years. There's the great white throne judgment, of course, where every, all, the, all the believers and unbelievers gather before the Lord and they're judged and some are cast into the lake of fire and some are, are brought into God's abode. But in other places, it speaks about a different kind of judgment. Particularly in Romans 14.10, 2 Corinthians 5.10. It refers to a different kind of judgment, a bima judgment. We refer to it as the bima seat of Christ. In fact, look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just to show you this. Paul says in verse... 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9... Speaking about being absent from the body and being home with the Lord, he says, whether we are at home or away, that is a home or away from our body, whether in this life or in the afterlife, he says, 
We make it our aim to please Him. Why? Because verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ, so that each one will receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. See, this isn't a judgment of your souls. This is a judgment of your works. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor. It doesn't matter if you're a lawyer. It doesn't matter if you're a, if you're a contractor. It doesn't matter if you're an engineer, a nurse, a doctor. You're going to stand and your whole life is going to be judged. Your whole life is going to be weighed by God. And all of your works are going to be standing there. And those which are wood, hay, and straw are going to be burned up. Completely lost. No value whatsoever. And those which are gold, silver, and precious stones are going to remain. They are going to endure, he says. And just to be absolutely, absolutely sure of what he's talking about, Paul adds it there in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says that you'll suffer loss, though you yourself will be saved only as through fire. It's not a judgment of your soul. If you're in Christ, your eternity is secure. But everything else you do in life is going to be judged. All the work, all the labor, everything you do dedicated to the glory of God, everything from the raising of your children and the serving of your family, the serving within the church, the ministering that you do to the body of Christ, the proclamation of the gospel, the support of, of the work of God, everything you do, it's all going to be there. It's all going to be judged. This judgment seat of Christ. This is what drives every faithful, careful worker. This understanding that there's coming not only this judgment, but this reward. This potential reward. You say, well, what's the reward? I don't think it's, I don't think it's just some crown or some adornment that you wear on your body. I actually think it's responsibility. The Scripture speaks of it over and over and over again. Jesus, of course, says he who is faithful with little will be entrusted with much. You say, well, when are you going to be entrusted with much? I believe it will be in the kingdom. He tells that, by the way, in the midst of a parable when he tell, he, he speaks of, of a king giving money, giving basically resources to his servants and then going away and then coming back again, he says, and judging them. And some of them used their resources and, and found profit from it. And he says he will double. The one who had, for example, five talents will be given ten. The one who had two talents will be given four upon the return of the king. He speaks, it speaks in Revelation chapter 5 about how we will reign together with Christ on the earth. How we will have reigning and ruling responsibility in the kingdom with Christ on the earth. This, this I think, is the reward. If you're faithful with little, 
you'll be entrusted with much. As a matter of fact, when we come to chapter 6, we'll see this. Paul's talking about lawsuits among believers, and he wants to lift their minds out of this present life and get them to understand that one day they're going to have a lot bigger things to judge. So he says to them in chapter 6, he says in verse 3, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than the matters pertaining to this life? He says, look, this is mundane stuff. Deciding disputes between Christians and between believers. You're going to one day judge angels. You're going to one day have responsibility to, to steward and, and to manage big things. I think this is a reward. You're faithful with the little thing the Lord has given you here, the place that the Lord has put you here. You stand before God and He examines your work. You've been faithful with that. He entrusts you with much. He rewards you. Faithful. Not according to your design, but according to His design. Wherever the Lord has placed you. Doing what He's called you to do. Well, there's one final conviction that drives the Apostle Paul. And that's the sacredness of the church. Paul couldn't get over the fact that he was serving in the midst of a church that belonged to God. It wasn't his. It wasn't governed by his ideas. It was God's. This is what he says. Do you not know that you're God's temple and that, the, and that God's Spirit dwells in you. And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. Basically, he says three, thing, three things here. We'll kind of take them in reverse order. First of all, he says God's temple is holy. Now, when it talks about something being holy, it's not primarily talking about something moral. As much as it's talking about something dedicated. He's saying that the church has been set apart and dedicated to God. It is set apart for Him and Him alone. That's why you look in the Old Testament and you look about all the construction materials and all the instruments in the, in the Old Testament temple and you read about spoons and bowls and, and different instruments and it says that they're holy. It's not talking about the morality of that spoon, Spoons aren't good and bad. When it says the spoon or the bowl or the lampstand is holy, what it's saying is it's been set apart from all the uses in the world. It's been set apart particularly for the uses of God. So he says, he says there at the end, you need to understand that this church is the temple of God. And as a temple of God, it has been set apart for God. For His purposes. It's not an organization for your political activism. It's not an organization for your social agenda. It's not an organization for your educational agenda or any of that stuff. It's God's. And then right before that in verse 17 he says, Therefore if anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. As a matter of fact, later on in chapter 11 he actually will speak about those in verse 22 of chapter 11 who are despising the church of God. And the way they're despising the church of God is when the church came together for fellowship meals, 
they would actually separate themselves off to their little clique. And they would actually hoard their food for their clique so that those who were particularly lower social status would come in and they would have no food. They were despising the church of God by simply their own pride and their own egocentricity. And Paul says, look, that's the reason why some of you are sick and some of you are even dying. He says some of you are asleep. God was physically judging those who were attacking His church. You destroy the church, God destroys you. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 talk about two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who were coming in and causing shipwreck in the lives of other people. They were sowing seeds of bad doctrine, false doctrine, strange doctrine. And, God said, and Paul says that, that he has handed them over to Satan. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll see when Paul hands someone over to Satan, it means the destruction of their flesh. Their spirit, he says, is saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, hopefully, if they're a true believer. God destroys those who destroy His temple. God attacks those who attack His church. God takes seriously those who are not careful workers. All of this... He says, because you are the temple of God and God's spirit dwells within you. You know, we always, we always like to talk about the indwelling of the spirit in the individual sense. And it's true. Paul will actually, over in chapter 6, he'll actually say, your body is the temple of God. And so there is an individual element about the spirit of God dwelling within you. But there's equally as important, maybe more important, there's a corporate indwelling of the Spirit. And that's what he's talking about here. You corporately are the temple of God. And corporately, you are the place of God's dwelling. Very similar to what he says over in Ephesians chapter 2, when he says we're being built up as a temple of God and a dwelling place for God's Spirit. You see, the church, what we do when we gather when we preach, when we teach, when we fellowship, when we minister. It's not primarily about the people who come here as much as it is the God who comes here. We're not primarily interested in those who are seeking us out in the world. We're not primarily even interested about those who are members of our church. When we build, when we choose our construction material, when we come up and develop our methods and our, our principles and everything else, we're primarily concerned about the one who primarily dwells here, which is God's Holy Spirit. That's our primary audience in our teaching. That's our primary goal in all of our ministering. That's our primary motivation in all that we do. He's the one we're concerned about. This corporate indwelling of the Holy Spirit guides every careful worker. And every careful worker understands it. 
church is the Lord's. It's His building. It's His field. He's the one that causes the growth. He's the one that designates the material. He's the one that is the foundation. He's the one who's at the core. He's the one who calls the workers. He's the one who dwells here. That's what Paul's saying. You get that in your head? You'll be okay. It's His. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. Father, it's a sobering message for us. And we understand how quickly our hearts can deviate and be infatuated with all the amusements of the world around us, with all the faulty and inferior materials that are propped up in all the, all the facades and false foundations of life. People promising shelter from storms, safety from dangers, promising hope and peace and joy and liveliness. None of that stuff, Lord, is anything by which we're to build your church, though. You've given us a foundation. It was our job to simply build on it with worthy materials. Give us these convictions. Deepen our understanding of them. And by your grace, keep us faithful to them. And it'll be yours. And it'll be to your glory. And you'll cause the growth. Or it's our prayer for your namesake. Amen.